This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello, everyone. This is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to another episode of the Great War Channel podcast. And today we are putting on our fanboy glasses again. No question about it. I mean, we've had some, we've had some of our greatest hits in recent weeks, uh, getting the chance to interview historians who uh, we admire and I've been reading and using for the episodes. And today was a, maybe an extra special one because we had Dr. Robert Gerwart as our guest. And he's one of the major thinkers about our period that we've been covering. So 1918 you know, onwards, the, the chaotic post-armistice years. And it was great to have a chance to talk to him and especially to get a better sense of his thinking about the November Revolution in Germany in 1918, which is kind of, I don't know, maybe the ugly stepchild of famous revolutions, uh, because it's often been tagged as, you know, being such a failure or kind of being not getting the job done. But his new book is like a completely different take on that and one that in all of my sort of reading, I hadn't really come across such a well, for lack of a better word, such a kind of creative way of assessing the November Revolution in Germany. So I, I, it was a great read, and I had a great time talking to him, and he's been super influential for us, so it was a, it was a treat. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. Um, I've said it before on other podcast episodes, but the November Revolution... I would say the kind of basic education I got for uh, about that like seminal event in German 20th century history was a bit lacking uh, <laughs> in my uh, when I went to um, to a high school or whatever the equivalent of my school is in the American format. I actually don't know. Um, and yeah, I think his takes uh, and his answers are very thoughtful and very nuanced. Um, he, we, I think, as you mentioned and he mentions, it's. Like it's so complex, such a complex topic. You need to like everybody that gives you a simple answer about this uh, basically outs themselves as not really understanding what's going on. Um, and he also, I think, rightfully points out that depending on even who you ask today, like w what political standing that person has today, you will still get a very different assessment on the revolution be it like uh like if you ask a far left-leaning german person today then they still will tell you that the social democrats uh, uh were the traitors of the revolution um and you and you know we get that a lot in the comments uh you know some people still uh, say that uh you know the transition to from monarchy monarchy to republic was uh, a, fa a failure and it would have been such a great thing to continue uh the german monarchy so that that thought, when people tell me that the German that the transition to the Republic was a failure, 
uh, A usually, as Robert Gavard also points out in the interview, comes from judging it by the downfall of the Weimar Republic in 1933 uh, and not by its merits of, uh, you know, being relatively stable, especially compared to other uh, hotbeds of civil war in Central Europe at the time. And for me personally, it's just baffling giving the let's say, below average performance of Kaiser Wilhelm II. And uh, yeah, but that's maybe something for another time. Maybe we, maybe we should get an expert on the Hohenzollern at some point uh, on the podcast, actually. That would be quite interesting. Anyway, um, we are only able to produce this podcast and to get world-leading historians like Robert Gerbert or like Laura Engelstein a while back or uh, Joseph Boff. Jonathan Boff uh, on the podcast because of your support on Patreon. And if you want to ask questions to these world-leading historians on the podcast and also generally want to support the production of the podcast and on The Great War on YouTube, please support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash The Great War. And without further ado, here is the interview. I'm very happy to be joined today by our guest for the podcast, Dr. Robert Gerwart, who is the Professor of Modern History at the University College Dublin and the Director for the Center of War Studies. He is also the author of several books, including one that is particularly important to us at the Great War in our new phase of post-armistice coverage. And it's called The Vanquished, Why the First World War Failed to End. And my copy is very worn, I can tell you that much. Um, but he's also the author of the book that we're going to talk about today, and which just came out this summer, which is called November 1918, and which focuses on the revolution in Germany. So thank you very much, Dr. Gerwart, for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me on the program. All right, so let's start from the top. Let's start from the beginning, so to speak. You've written already on the post-armistice years. Um, why did you decide now at this point to focus in on November 1918 and the immediate uh, period following that? And what was your objective with the book? Yeah, throughout my um, writing career, I've tried to integrate German history more broadly into European history. So in this case, uh, I spent nearly a decade thinking about uh, the immediate post-war periods, uh, which eventually then accumulated in the publication of The Vanquished, uh, which looks more broadly at uh, patterns of violence and non-violence across uh, Europe at the end of the Great War. And uh, once I had written that, I uh, suddenly felt that some of the things I had learned as student uh, about German history didn't feel quite right again. And I felt uh, that it was time to offer a more balanced assessment of the German Revolution of 1918, which, uh, if you see it in a broader European context, and particularly in the uh, Central European context in which I feel German history belongs, uh, then suddenly the achievements of the revolution become more apparent um, compared to uh, if you only look at it in a national perspective. So my objective really was to, as I 
Fed offer a more balanced assessment of the German Revolution of 1918, which I think it's fair to say hasn't had the best uh, press over the past hundred years. Uh, the main reason for that is that we all know how the story of Weimar Germany ends, and we have tended to read the history of the November Revolution uh, through the prism of Hitler's appointment as Chancellor in January 1933 and the horrors that followed. So while it is, I think, perfectly understandable that uh, historians of Germany have been grappling with that question, how uh, Hitler and the horrors of the Third Reich were possible and what the origins of that um, disaster were, uh, I don't think 1918 uh, should feature as prominently as it has in uh, the past. So uh, in that generally uh, widely accepted uh, reading, the revolution of 1918 was not radical enough, it didn't break completely uh, with the old elites and therefore should be seen as an important stepping stone towards Hitler's seizure of power. And I personally think that's uh, wrong and I've tried to write a more open-ended story of the revolution uh, that also highlights its achievements under very difficult uh, circumstances. Um, because when we teach history to undergraduates at university, one of the first things that we tell students is not to make the mistake of reading history backwards, but to contextualize events and to try and see them through the eyes of contemporaries. And that's precisely uh, what I've tried to do because contemporaries uh, who lived through uh, the revolution of 1918 obviously did not know how the story was going to end. So I was trying to uh, put a lot more uh, emphasis on their own perceptions on subjectivity uh, during the revolution. Okay, yeah, I mean, achievements of the German uh, 1918 revolution is not necessarily a phrase that uh, one cuts their uh, student teeth hearing very often. At least I didn't. Mm -hmm. um, so let's, let's talk a bit about the periodization, because that's always uh, an important choice when, when a historian's choosing to, to tackle a particular topic. You started in 1917 uh, with this book and ended with the failed infamous failed putsch of 1923. Why did you choose those bookends? Yeah, I was kind of grappling with that question uh, right from the start when I was starting to um, conceptualize the, the book. And uh, obviously any um, chronology of a book is uh, highly subjective and I could have chosen different uh, starting points and end points. Um, but I felt it was very important to uh, start in 1917, the year in which I feel uh, the Great War changes. Um, it changes because of two major events, the uh, American entry into the war uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, the uh, two Russian revolutions, in particular, the, the Bolshevik uh, Revolution of 1917. Uh, those two uh, transform the conflict, in my view, and also the expectations for the post-war order. Um, historians of the Great War often speak of a revolution of expectations in this context. And what that means is that uh, in 1917, early 1918, uh, people have all sorts of unrealistic expectations for what the world after the war might look like. Uh, some of them are hoping for a revolution uh, similar to the one that had just taken place in uh, Russia. Uh, others are expecting a liberal world order along the lines um, outlined by Woodrow Wilson. Um, in Germany in particular, you have nationalists who, after the end of the conflict with Russia, 
and the peace treaty of Brest-Litovsk are firmly convinced that they will win this conflict, that Germany will be triumphant, and therefore they're expecting uh, a victory peace rather than uh, a defeat. And these uh, people include uh, influential uh, militaries like Ludendorff, who is hoping that he can now take troops from the Eastern Front, uh, throw them uh, into battle on the Western Front and use the temporary advantage uh, in numbers in order to crush the British and the French before American soldiers will arrive in large numbers. So uh, within the nationalist camp, certainly, uh, there is a great deal of optimism uh, in at the beginning of 1918 that this war is going to be won, um, which of course then turns out uh, to be absolutely untrue. And in uh, November 1918, uh, Germany is defeated militarily, even though uh, lots of people uh, deny that and say, uh, of course, with the famous stab in the back uh, myth that uh, the German army has not been defeated uh, in the fields, that the German army has been stabbed in the back by communists and Jews uh, and other war profiteers who um, basically wanted Germany uh, to be defeated. Um, 1923, the other bookend, uh, if you like, uh, is the year in which, uh, certainly by the end of 1923, when the revolutionary phase uh, is finally over and the Republic is steering into uh, much calmer waters. Um, so very frequently the years 1923 to uh, 1929, the beginning of the Great uh, Depression, are described sort of as the golden years of the Weimar Republic, and certainly the uh, more stable years when compared to uh, the years 1918 to 23 or 1929 to 1933. So uh, that's uh, basically why I chose those chronological bookends. Okay, now um, getting back to the early years, you write that the future of the Weimar Republic was open and that uh, this was actually one of the more successful revolutions of the numerous revolutions that took place in this period, despite its eventual failure, and that there's some, you know, you, you sort of emphasize a bit the optimism of, uh, of some people after that revolution. And what led you to the conclusion that it was successful among its contemporary revolutions? Yeah, I think that is actually a, a very important uh, question because in the existing historiography, very frequently, uh, the revolution is described as a failed revolution or a half-hearted revolution. And I think uh, it is important initially to look at the overall aims and objectives of uh, the revolutionaries themselves. Now, different uh, factions within the revolutionary uh, movement wanted different things, uh, that's for sure. But initially, uh, this is very much a revolution to end the First World War. Um, and it is uh, worth bearing in mind when we look at the success or failure uh, of the revolution that Germany had just lost the most catastrophic war in human history up until that point. So this is the context, and it's a particularly challenging uh, context for uh, Friedrich Hebert and the more moderate uh, majority social democrats who shaped uh, the first phase of Weimar's history. Um, and it's often, I think, overlooked that the political changes that occur in the winter, autumn and winter of 1918, uh, are fundamental. Germany is moving away from being 
uh, an imperial system with limited powers for the parliament to a parliamentary democracy. Uh, and important things like uh, the right to vote for women um, are introduced, the eight-hour uh, working day. Uh, I would also count the avoidance of a bloody civil war um, as a significant achievement uh, in the context of what is going on elsewhere in Europe in 1918. Um, in that period, you have um, nearly 30 uh, violent transfers of power, very often accompanied by uh, civil wars, and uh, that is avoided in Germany. So I think we need to look at the broader uh, Central Eastern European context where uh, you also see political uh, changes, regime changes, uh, in order to uh, assess how successful or unsuccessful the German uh, revolution was. It obviously lacks some of the uh, bloody glamour of the French Revolution or the, um, uh, the Russian Revolution, uh, but in terms of achieving some of its key objectives, uh, peace, uh, but also uh, democratization, uh, it is uh, quite successful. And if we look at the situation uh, in 1923, uh, Hitler's uh, putsch uh, had just been defeated, and uh, the same is true for various attempts of the left and other parts of the right to uh, overthrow the democratically elected uh, government in Germany. So the enemies of the Republic have been marginalized. Uh, Hitler's own political party plays uh, no role whatsoever uh, in German politics until 1929. And so from the viewpoint of the contemporaries, which once again is very important uh, to me in this book, um, it seemed as if the future was quite bright compared to uh, the previous years uh, up until, you know, certainly prior to the, the First World War. Uh, so democracy had been stabilized and uh, no one could know that the greatest economic crisis in world history was yet to come in 1929. Now that leads me to think that uh, the farther one would go uh, to the ends of the political spectrum, the less bright the revolution might appear to contemporaries. Um, and that kind of uh, you know, brings up the next question I'd like to ask, which is about those majority social democrats who were sort of the driving force, uh, so to speak, in that early phase. But they also cooperated with conservative forces in putting down the Ruhr Red Army and so on. And there's been a lot made of this, right, that they somehow betrayed the revolution in the long term. Where do you stand on that, uh, on that discussion of the M MSPD's uh, role? Yeah, I don't think uh, it will ever be possible to find a universally accepted uh, uh, thesis on that, because um, for the far left in Germany, the revolution has always been uh, associated with the odium of betrayal. Interestingly enough, the same goes for the far right, but for different reasons. So the far right accuses the uh, revolution of betraying the army in the fields, whereas the far left uh, accused the social democrats of uh, betraying a, a real revolution um, that, depending on you know where they stood, whether they were hardline communists or independent social democrats, could either have looked like what was going on in, uh, in, in Russia, or had uh, you know stronger elements of direct democracy with councils, uh, soldiers and workers' councils um, playing a much more prominent role uh, in 
political developments in Germany. So in some ways, the historiography has, uh, after 1945, has adopted those narratives of betrayal, uh, which is quite interesting, um, because we are taking the perspective of the enemies of democracy and kind of have used that as a generally accepted uh, narrative. Um, it is worth bearing in mind that uh, those people who wanted a radical social revolution uh, were always a minority in Germany. So the, uh, the, the, the thing is that they wanted to enforce a political regime uh, which was not accepted by the vast majority of the population. If you look at the election results uh, for the National Assembly uh, in January 19. At 19, it is relatively clear that the vast majority of Germans, for a variety of reasons, um, opted for parties that supported parliamentary democracy over a council's republic. Um, so, uh, in my view, what Iba doesn't, I certainly don't want to condone any of the violence that is associated with the suppression of the uh, far left in Germany. Uh, but from Ebert's perspective, uh, it was a matter of the general population deciding what form of state uh, Germany should have going forward, whether it should be a parliamentary democracy or not. And uh, that's why he insists on having elections for a national assembly. Um, so, as I said at the beginning, I don't think there will be an answer that will satisfy everyone, and obviously no one would ever condone the violence that is particularly associated with Moscow and the Freikorps. Uh, but nonetheless, it is, I think, quite important to bear in mind that a council's republic uh, was never the favoured option for the um, vast majority of Germans in 1918. Yeah, I mean, easy answers uh, are, not, uh, are not very common in German 20th century history, uh, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but let's, let's move a level up now beyond just the national lens. One of the things that... Uh, kind of struck me as um, a bit of a different way of looking at it that I hadn't uh, thought that much about the November Revolution in this way, was that you do put some emphasis on, on the transnational context. So how does that broader international context of what's going on um, play a role in how we can assess the, and understand the November Revolution? Yeah, seeing German history in a broader uh, European or global context, I think, is extremely helpful in revising some of our assumptions about German history. That has already been the case in the uh, famous uh, debate uh, among historians about the German special path, uh, special developments that led to uh, Hitler's rise to power, uh, in the sense that uh, many years ago, a whole range of historians, uh, Jeffrey Lee, David Blackburn, and but also many others, um, made it very clear that uh, essentially uh, European history in that period is a history of various uh, special paths. There is no normative uh, path. But nonetheless, I think it is extremely helpful to compare or to view German history in a broader transnational context. Here in the specific case of the German Revolution, I think it allows us to compare the revolution that is going on in Germany uh, in 1918-19 with revolutionary events elsewhere. And what becomes relatively clear from that broader perspective is the relative non-violence, at least initially, of the German Revolution. So uh, you have a very significant political transformation going on in Germany, which 
at least in the first month, is relatively bloodless. And even if you look at the much more violent events in uh, early to mid-1919, uh, they pale, of course, in comparison to what is going on elsewhere, from Finland to Russia to uh, Hungary and other places. Uh, so if we assume that the German Revolution is extremely violent, I think it is worth looking at what is going on elsewhere uh, at the same time and then to compare it, because uh, such a comparison will show us that uh, of the various revolutions that are ongoing in this period, uh, the German one is one of the more bloodless ones. Okay. Well, I was so I was paying so much attention to your answer that I uh, that now I got to find myself in my list of questions again. But we can edit uh, we can edit this this little piece out. Um, the next question was submitted by one of uh, the Great War Channel supporters and a viewer of ours, and it's a little bit of a counterfactual. And I know counterfactuals can be sort of a nightmare for uh, historians, but I think this is an interesting one. He asks. Um, what would the outcome of a successful cap putsch have potentially looked like, especially with relations to uh, you know, accepting or refusing to accept the Treaty of Versailles? And he sort of throws out a bit of a, a comparison with the Turkish successful opposition of the Treaty of Sèvres and whether it might have sort of taken that route if the cap putsch had been successful. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a very interesting uh, counterfactual question. Um, and obviously, I mean, my answer is uh, highly hypothetical as well. Of course. Uh, but I think it is, it is safe to uh, assume that a successful Kapuch could only have led to a nationalist dictatorship because, uh, and this kind of, I think, partly answers the second half of the question as well, uh, this is not a popular movement. It is a movement that is backed by parts of the, uh, the FICOR movement. Uh, so it is dependent on force. And we also see that the Kapuch, of course, is brought down by uh, one of the, uh, actually the largest strike in German history, a general strike where for once the, uh, the communists and the social democrats work together and rally their supporters and literally uh, public life in Germany comes to a standstill. So the, the Kapuchists uh, never really uh, stood a strong chance uh, of success. And that I think is in contrast to the um, situation in Turkey where uh, Ataturk's uh, movement of resistance is of course a popular movement, which is um, supported by a very significant part of the overall population, uh, which helps mobilization enormously. Um, in the German case, I don't think that uh, the outcome of a cup government refusing uh, to honor the Versailles Treaty would have been accepted by the uh, victorious allies. And of course, the military situation is somewhat different in the sense that in um, in Asia Minor, uh, the British basically fight with a proxy army, the Greek army, uh, whereas Germany, of course, has a land border with France. So Germany was in no position to offer serious resistance to uh, an occupation, uh, which, of course, we see in 19, 
23. Uh, passive resistance is the only uh, way of resistance they can offer. Uh, they know exactly that military resistance would be futile and that there would probably be an invasion of uh, Germany. On the other hand, then we see after 1933 in particular, when uh, Hitler starts to circumvent uh, various provisions of the Versailles Treaty, uh, that um, revising the treaty with pressure is possible, although the global situation after 1933 is very different in the sense that the British and the French are facing uh, challenges from a whole range of revisionist uh, powers, uh, Japan in the Far East, uh, Italy, of course, in the Mediterranean, and uh, Germany. Uh, so there are far more pressures then than there would have been in 1923, perhaps too many pressures to contain at the same time. I'm not quite sure that answers all of the aspects of the question, but um, that's as good as it gets, I think. Yeah, but that's, it's a fascinating excursion. Uh, some of these counterfactuals are really, uh, are really interesting. I mean, my first thought when I, when I read the question that the viewer submitted was also the proximity of the French army. And, and we just did a recent episode about them that included the story of them, uh, you know, occupying Frankfurt and so on in 1920 already. So uh, shortly after the putsch. Um, right. Let's focus in then, keeping up with this uh, with this topic of uh, maybe the right side of the political spectrum. Let's focus for a moment on the Freikorps, which is sometimes um, seen in all sorts of different ways. Sometimes uh, by some, it's been romanticized. Um, but there's this question about its ideology or lack thereof. And I've read different arguments saying that, you know, the Freikorps can be considered to have some sort of coherent proto-Nazi ideology of anti-Semitism and uh, violence and so on. And then on the other hand, that it wasn't really ideologically coherent and that it was sort of a directionless, uh, directionless sort of search for action uh, in order to in order to continue the violent experience of the war years where do you stand on this how do you see the the freikorps and ideology yeah i don't think um it is really a contradiction to say that it's both i mean you find the, the freikorps movement uh, is quite a diverse movement, much more diverse than has generally been assumed when you uh, hear arguments about them being the heralds of uh, Nazism or proto-fascists. I mean, obviously there are people in there uh, who hold ideological beliefs that are very similar to um, the Nazis. Uh, Anti-Semitism uh, features prominently on the minds of many. Um, Anti-communism plays a role for all of them. Um, but there are also quite a few people who are, as you uh, just described, uh, are looking for action. There are people who um, want to continue their soldierly existences post-1918. But it's not just ex-soldiers that find themselves in, in the Freikorps. Um, it's also uh, army cadets, for example, who uh, feel that they have lost out on their opportunity to fight. Uh, and there are people who uh, join them because they uh, offer a sense of purpose and direction. Uh, there are monarchists in there, there are uh, proto-fascists in there. Uh, so it is 
obviously a movement of the political right, but the right in itself is ideologically as fractious as the political left. Uh, I think that's often uh, forgotten. So while they can agree on what they don't want, a Bolshevik revolution in Germany, uh, many of them cannot agree at all on what it is that uh, they want Germany to look like in the future. Um, some of the people who fought in the Freikorps find themselves in the Nazi movement post-1933 or even before then, some of them even in the SS. Uh, but interestingly enough, you also find a couple who would find themselves in the resistance against Hitler. Uh, some of them even end up on the far left in the um, communist resistance against Hitler. Uh, so I think it is a more diverse uh, movement than has often been uh, argued. Um, generally speaking, what holds this diverse movement together is, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say an, uh, anti-Semitism, although it plays an important role for some of them, uh, but certainly anti-communism. So they know what they're against, but they, they can't agree on what they are in favor of. And I'm assuming a fair number of them would have connected those two uh, ideas of anti-Semitism and anti-communism as well. Right, and that's the perfect segue into our last question because, um, of course, you know, one of the most uh, refreshing and interesting things that I found about the book was trying to focus on the November Revolution on its own terms, you know, with the contemporary look. But nonetheless, it's always going to feature in that question of understanding the, uh, the coming of the Nazis, even though, as you pointed out just uh, some minutes ago, the Nazi party doesn't become, you know, politically really influential until, until later on in the, in the later 1920s. But how important is it to try to understand the rise of the Nazis as a 15-year process rather than the version that I think in, you know, popular histories or documentaries or popular history books where we sort of get the Coles Notes version where all of a sudden they're on the scene in the late 1920s and they're in power before you know it. For me, it's very important to caution people against uh, reading history backwards, as I said at the very beginning of our conversation. Um, I don't see the November Revolution as a major stepping stone towards 1933. Obviously, if you want to write the history of uh, the Nazi movement, uh, then it is impossible to do so without looking at 
uh, certain ideas that were already in circulation in the late 19th century and before the First World War, and uh, which gained currency um, during uh, the Great War. Uh, without the Great War, uh, fascism as an ideology and uh, national socialism as an ideology uh, probably would have looked very, very differently indeed. Uh, simultaneously, though, I'm quite insistent that uh, up until the Great Depression, um, Hitler's movement is as relevant to German politics as the, you know, the Fat Earth Society uh, in, in today's world. Um, it doesn't play any role in German politics at all. And if you had said to anyone in 1928 that Hitler uh, was going to be chancellor uh, five years later, uh, you probably would have been uh, confined to some uh, asylum. Um, <laughs> because he, uh, you know, his party had less than 3% uh, of the popular vote in uh, in 1928 in the general uh, elections and at the same time you have a very significant uh, election victory of the social democrats who uh, whose chancellor uh, Hermann Müller returns as, as chancellor and that year he publishes I think a very important book which reflects on the November revolution 10 years later and essentially the tenor of that book is um, we made it we made it through extraordinary uh, difficulties and uh, the, the future is bright. You know, democracy has triumphed in Germany. And then a year later, you've got the, the Great Depression, which uh, if you look at you know, the recent, uh, the most recent uh, recession 10 years ago, we also saw a spike in um, electoral successes of far right and far left populist parties. Uh, so it is perhaps better understandable uh, how intimately connected economic crises and uh, the rise of populist movements are. And of course, the Great Depression hit Germany particularly hard. Uh, at the height, you have uh, six million uh, unemployed people. And that figure only tells you part of the story uh, because lots of people were also in uh, precarious employment. And of the six million people, uh, unemployed people, we, we don't factor in the dependents, you know, the children and spouses of those who had lost their jobs. So there is serious economic hardship, which uh, drives people towards um, political parties, not just of the far right, but also of the far left, which then in turn um, worries the middle classes who see the rise in votes for the Communist Party and feel that, you know, the Bolshevik Revolution is coming uh, closer and they, um, you know, if, if you have to decide between two extremes, they feel more comfortable with a right-wing uh, option than they do with a far-left option. So I think all of that needs to be um, taken seriously. 1929 is the major, I think, the major uh, sea change in the history of the Weimar Republic. And um, I think that needs to be brought out more strongly. Um, but as I said, it is perfectly understandable, of course, if you look at the history of Nazism, um, that you look at the origins of uh, this political movement. Uh, but Hitler's rise to power is anything but in inevitability, if you once again look at the election results, both at national level and local level in 1928. All right, and that's the kind of answer, folks, uh, that caused me to really enjoy the book. Um, I have to admit, perhaps I had a, a kind of more conventional uh, idea of the November Revolution before, but uh, yeah, I, I have to say this was a fresh. Uh, this was quite a fresh look for me, and I really enjoyed it. I'm going to be using it as a resource for us, of course, when we prepare our future video documentary episodes. 
um, up until 1923. So Dr. Gerwart, I really want to thank you for joining us today. As for the book itself, if our viewers now have their interest piqued, as I did, um, where can they best get a hold of it? Well, normally I would recommend going to your local bookshop, but uh, it probably depends on um, where you are based and whether bookshops have uh, already uh, reopened or not. Uh, but you can also get it from the OEP website or uh, from Amazon if you're so inclined. Okay, that's Oxford Uni University Press uh, website for those of you listening, but we will have the links uh, alongside the post of this podcast. All right, uh, so thank you very much again, Dr. Gerwart, for joining us today. It was a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, I, I very much enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your interest. Thank you.